The reading this morning is from Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through the death of Christ, We have been united to you. We are united with each other. And you want us to be united with the world. Please speak to us this morning. That we can know what this really means in practice for each one of us. Amen. I want to begin by just giving you a snapshot of what it's like uh, in the Pringle household. Every week, Jan downloads a podcast. It's a film review from Simon Mayo and Mark Commode. Did anybody else download this podcast? Got one, two, two, yep, a couple of people. It's a really good podcast. And she plays it whenever she's doing any cooking, cleaning, ironing. She'll have this podcast playing on her iPad. Uh, And it's a really good podcast, and it talks about all the different films. What's really special about Jan, though, is that she's also, while she's doing that, got a notebook. And every time there's a film reviewed which she thinks is good, she puts it on one of three lists. Uh, The first list is uh, something that's really, really good that we just have to go immediately to the cinema and go and watch it. I mean, that happens about once or twice a year. Uh, The second list is if she thinks this will be a good film for us to watch with our grown-up children when they come back at Christmas or Easter, and then she goes out and buys the DVD. 
Um, and the third list are things that uh, don't quite meet those two standards, but she thinks it's a really good film for, for me and her to watch. And, and then she waits for it to come on the TV, which often takes about four years. But four years later, <laughs> she digs up the list and uh, she, she records it. She goes through the Radio Times every week very religiously. She's a very religious woman. And... <laughs> and writes this up and, and, uh, and records them. So there's always a big choice of, uh, of films that are really good films. And every Friday night we sit down and we watch one of these films. Not just any of them, we always go through the, la the last one first, if you see what I mean. No, yes. Well, anyway, we go through them in the order in which we recorded them. Uh, and so the films that uh, I wouldn't have chosen to watch, um, but actually they turn out to be really good, most of them. And on Friday we watched... Um, Testament of Youth, um, which was a film which was uh, brought out uh, four years ago um, to, to mark the 100th anniversary of World War I. Um, I wasn't, have never read the book, I knew it was based on the book, never read the book. The book was written by Vera Britton um, and uh, sat down to watch this film, which was an amazing film of her memoir of, of World War I. The film covers the period from 1914 to 1918. And I, if you've not seen the film, I'd really recommend it to you. Um, you're too late, you've missed it on the TV, but it might come round again. Um, and at the end of the film, I won't spoil it for you, there's no spoilers here, but there is um, a meeting at the end of the film, uh, just after the war had ended, with people who are really angry uh, and full of hatred for the German people and wanting revenge. And one by one, people go up and said how their husband had been killed by the Germans or their son had been killed by the Germans or their brother had been killed by the Germans. And Vera Britton stands up and says and shares her story about the losses that she has faced during the war, but also tells a story of how she went to the front line to serve as a nurse because her brother was uh, in active service and she hoped she might see her brother there. Um, she went there expecting to, to care for British soldiers, but when she got there, she was allocated to care for German soldiers who had been injured. Um, many of them were dying, um, but had been uh, brought in by, by the British, and, and she was told to care for them. And there she sat with them. She could speak German, and she talked with them, and she cared for them as they died. And she said that their blood was like our blood, their suffering is like our suffering, their loss is like our loss, and there can be no more war. That message did not go down very well in that meeting where people were full of hatred. Of course, there's nothing new about groups of people who hate each other. Israelis and Palestines are killing each other in the Holy Lands. Catholics and Protestants have been killing each other relatively recently in Northern Ireland. Go back 400 years and they were burning each other at the stake. Our history, our history of the world is littered with such examples. And the same was true in Bible times. Back then there was no love lost between Jews and Gentiles. It was fueled by a sense of superior, superiority, 
Um, the Jews felt that they were God's chosen people and therefore they looked down on the Gentiles who weren't. The Gentiles though also looked down on the Jews. They called them godless atheists because the Gentiles with different religions all worshipped idols and statues and the Jews didn't and therefore they thought they were godless because they had no idols to worship. But it wasn't just religious bigotry. Jews and Gentiles had also physically been at war with each other over the centuries. And for most of that time, the Jews had come the worst off. I mean, right from the very beginning, as Moses led the people to the promised lands, they'd fought with smaller nations in the Holy Lands. And in the time of David, uh, those sort of battles continued with the Philistines and others. But as the centuries went by, uh, the wars got bigger, uh, the enemies got bigger, and uh, the Jews took a real battering, starting with the Assyrian Empire, followed by the Babylonian Empire with King Nebuchadnezzar, where all the leaders were taken off to Babylon. Then the Persian Empire, Then the Greek Empire, which was probably the most brutal of all of them. And then now at the time when Paul is writing his letter to the church in Ephesus, it's the Roman Empire that uh, has taken over the whole region. And the Jews are suffering under their occupation. And this conflict between Jews and Gentiles was a huge problem for the early church. As they became Christians... Jewish Christians felt superior to Gentile Christians, partly because of their heritage, that they said, well, we are literally descendants of Abraham and uh, David, and, and, and we've got the scriptures. We Jewish Christians, they probably didn't say it, but they felt it, are superior to the Gentile Christians. But the Gentile Christians also felt superior to the Jewish Christians, because they knew that most of the Jews had rejected Jesus. It was only a few of them had become Christians. And because of that, the gospel had then been uh, spread out and entrusted to the Gentiles. And so it's within that context of these tensions that Paul appeals for unity. And his main argument is that Jews and Gentiles have been united by the death of Christ. As he said in verses 14 to 16, which we've just had read for us. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law of, with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We've just had read for us the second half of Ephesians chapter two. As you know, we're working through the whole letter um, at the moment. Last week, Jonathan was preaching about the first half of this chapter, which can be summed up in one word, the word grace. It's the gift of forgiveness which God gives to those of us who don't deserve it. 
grace. And the second half that we've just been looking at this morning can be summed up in the word reconciliation. And taking those two halves together, the whole of chapter two, the main point that Paul is making is that through God's grace, by the death of Jesus on the cross, both Jews and Gentiles have both been reconciled to God. And therefore, as witness to this, they must be reconciled to each other. Reconciliation is a theme that the Apostle Paul is particularly fond of. And I briefly just want to put up a few verses from some of his other letters in which he writes about reconciliation. So first of all, his letter to the church in Rome. He writes, Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have, have now received reconciliation. And to the church in Colossae, he writes, For God was pleased to have all his, his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And finally, uh, his second letter to the church in Corinth. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So I hope you can see that the theme of reconciliation is something that's very much in Paul's mind as he writes to all the churches um, which he has visited. And it's this last verse that I've brought up, 2 Corinthians 5.18. It's a verse that Bishop Christopher has been particularly speaking about in recent months. A couple of weeks ago, he sent a letter to leaders throughout the whole diocese. Now, I know not all of you um, have come from an Anglican background, and the word diocese um, might throw you a bit. So let me just give you a potted history of what I mean by a diocese. To start off, it's a, it is a geographical area. It's more than that, which I'll say. But the church, the England has been divided into 42 uh, geographical areas, which we call a diocese. And the one which we live is the Diocese of Coventry, which covers the city of Coventry and nearly all of the county of Warwickshire. So you can get out a map and see where the Diocese of Coventry is. But just like a church is much more than a building, and it's actually a church is really the people that worships in the building, so a diocese is much more than a, an area on a map. It is all of the people in the Church of England who, who are worshiping and belonging together. So it involves all the people who belong to uh, Church of England churches, all those who um, belong to Church of England schools, all those who are Church of England chaplains working in prisons and hospitals and, and uh, universities, and of course, all those at the cathedral. And Bishop Christopher is calling all that the whole diocese, and as the head of the whole diocese, he sent this letter to all of the, some 2,000 or so leaders. He sent it to all the clergy, the head teachers, church wardens, uh, and many more. And I just want to, to read you a bit of the letter that he wrote. He says that when I first came to the diocese, which was nearly 10 years ago, I was very impressed with the way in which 
churches were united to worship God, make new disciples, and transform communities. My commitment to these foundational activities remains unchanged. But at the same time, I've been challenged to ask the question, why do we do these things? And to distinguish the why question from the what do we do and the how do we do questions. Our mission is to worship God, to make new disciples, and to transform communities. But is this really the best way to describe our shared purpose as a whole diocese? So, why do we do what we do? Because of the great cathedral, the diocese is known throughout the world for the Ministry of Reconciliation. Although this ministry began and continues in Coventry Cathedral, in recent years we've seen a growing desire for reconciliation to be at the heart of the whole diocese of Coventry. That's the churches, the schools, the chaplaincies. St. Paul describes the gospel in this way. It's the verse we've got on the screen. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Perhaps this verse gives us the best answer to the question, why does the whole diocese of Coventry exist? But what exactly does Paul mean by reconciliation? Well, it's about the restoring of relationships. And there are three dimensions to this. An upward, inward, and outward dimension. Let's start with the upward dimension. The restoration of our relationship with God. Through the death of Christ on the cross, we have been reconciled to God. As Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for your sins and my sins, which means that we can be forgiven, that our relationship with God can be restored. When I was 14, I responded to that. I accepted the fact that Jesus had died for me. I asked him to come into my life, to be my Lord and Savior. And that is how we become reconciled to God. That's the first dimension. But reconciliation is much more than that. There's also an inward dimension of the restoration of relationships with one another here in church. And that's the point that Paul is making. The Christians, for Christians, there are no longer any barriers that divide us. If children from different backgrounds are adopted into the same human family, then they become brothers and sisters, whether they like it or not. And as Christians, we are adopted into God's family, and therefore all other Christians are our brothers and sisters. Whether we like it or not, that is the reality. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, can bring Galatians 3 up? Yeah. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. 
That's the reality. But unfortunately, as Paul discovered with the early church, Christians often behave as if those barriers are still there. The barrier that he was mainly focusing on with the early church was this barrier between Jew and Gentiles. But other barriers, it would take longer for those barriers to be sorted out within the church. It wasn't until a couple of years ago, that uh, a couple of hundred years ago, the Christians here in the Church of England, all Christians sort of accepted that there should be no barriers between slaves and free people. Um, and I was just reading up some of the history of that and was really just horrified again about how entrenched the Church of England was, together with all institutions actually in England, in the slave trade. The Church of England owned plantations um, in Barbados, and owned, owned slaves there. The Bishop of Exeter personally owned slaves. Um, Anglicans often um, were rich slave owners or profited hugely from the slave trade and they poured their ill-gotten gains into the coffers of the church. And which means that cities that had strong links with the trade, uh, slave trade, like Bristol, um, when William um, Wilberforce's anti-slave trade was defeated, uh, his anti-slave trade bill was uh, defeated by Parliament, churches in Bristol rang their bells in celebration that, uh, that this, this, uh, this law had been defeated. Wilberforce was a great uh, Christian and Anglican and he was fighting um, to abolish slavery. But many in the church were not. They could simply could not accept that slaves and free people were all one. Fortunately, I think that battle has won. There is still slavery, obviously, um, and, and tra human trafficking happening now, but at least the official position of the Church of England um, is united and that, that slavery is wrong, that all are one. Today, the battle is more in the realm of there being of, of, of gender equality. Male and female are all one. Um, something that we've been fighting for in the Church of England with women bishops, but again, it's not just the church. Um, you may have seen just in the news, just, I think it was just yesterday, um, that the BBC has finally agreed um, to compensate the former China editor, Carrie Gracie, um, and given her back pay. She was, um, when she was the, the, the China editor, she took on the role on the, on the assurance that she would be paid the same as male colleagues. And later turned out she was actually only being paid about half what they were, were getting. Um, and the Church of England, uh, sorry, the BBC has now um, acknowledged that they were wrong and have um, paid her. And she's given all of that money uh, to charity because she said it wasn't about the money, it was about the principle. Um, and in an interview she said she can now say, you know, I am equal uh, with my male colleagues. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male or female. We're all one in Christ. That's the reality. 
that through the death of Christ, we are all one. And Paul urges Christians to behave in ways that demonstrates the truth of that reality. And so the last few verses that we had read to us this morning from Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's speaking here to the the Gentile Christians. But you are fellow citizens with God's people, that's the Jewish Christians, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So that's the inward dimension of us being united to one another, those of us in the church, united to one another because God, through the death of Christ, has the barriers between us have gone. But finally, there's also an outward dimension this, to this and it's about the restoration of relationships in the whole world. Our Christian vision is that God is bringing a new heaven and a new earth. And God is calling each of us to this ministry of reconciliation. That involves telling others the good news of the gospel, that they too can be reconciled with God and reconciled to others. The ministry of reconciliation means helping other people to be reconciled to one another. Wherever we see conflict in our world, being agents of reconciliation, something which is incredibly difficult to do, as Vera Britton discovered as she stood up and spoke for reconciliation with Germans. It also involves the whole creation being reconciled with God. A new heavens and a new earth means the creation itself, which is out of kilter with God's purposes, needs to be brought back into his purpose and engagement with our environment is, uh, and environmental issues is one way in which Christians are doing that today. The ministry is so huge, so all-encompassing, that we can't do it alone. We all need each other. And that's why the bishop isn't writing just to churches, but also to schools and chaplaincies and the cathedral, encouraging us all to work together. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Amen. Let's stand. I'm just going to spend a few moments, a few minutes as we bring ourselves before God and allow him to speak to us. A band will come up and start playing in a few moments, but let's begin with a time of silence. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you for the way in which, through the death of Christ, we have been reconciled to you. Thank you that, through the death of Christ, we have been reconciled to one another. 
and that you want the whole world to be reconciled to you. And we pray that as we come before you now, you'll speak to us and show us what steps you would help us, have us do as you call each one of us to this ministry of reconciliation. <laughs>